Most of you know by now that this year at Northside we have been working to get into some practical application of grace. Uh, Certainly we want to understand God's grace from a theological perspective, but we also want to be able to put it into practice, to be able to take hold of what grace really means when you give someone something that they didn't deserve or earn, when they were the recipient of your unmerited favor. Now, when we do that for ourselves, when we practice that individually, collectively, as a congregation, we are beginning to understand the goodness and the grace of God. Now, we don't touch the hem of the garment, of course, but in these monthly challenges that we've been having, the goal here really is not just to have you doing busy projects. The goal is to help you understand God's goodness and his grace to us. So as a part of that, for July, we're doing this challenge with blessings and backpacks. And the goal is to, uh, we've kind of entered into a relationship with Pleasant Valley Elementary School. They live, they are, their building is just a couple of miles south from ours. And one of the things that teachers at this time of year uh, have to deal with, besides, uh, you know, summer coming to an end, is this uh, challenge of preparing for students who may not be prepared. So as a congregation, we've decided that we want to bless and help them, and so we're challenging each of you to get a backpack or, and I couldn't give you a backpack because they're all taken, but or one of these baskets. And the purpose of that is to be a blessing to teachers. So what we want to do is fill up a basket and a backpack. And here in just a couple of weeks, right, as the teachers are coming back, we want them to come into a classroom with a basket of supplies full of things that they would have to otherwise buy for themselves. And a backpack full of student supplies for that kid who forgot his pencil or their markers or whatever. And so to to come into a classroom sort of stressed out, having to prepare your classroom, having to think about the kids and knowing that there's a good church of folks just a couple of miles north of them that has not only tried to fill their basket, but is praying for them and with them as they endeavor in the great process of influencing the next generation. I think it's a wonderful thing for us to do, and I appreciate those of you who have returned so many of these, and I realize several have come in today, and probably there are those of you who don't do anything until it's the last minute. So I'm counting on you. I know we have a few baskets and backpacks still out there, but please be diligent about returning those and making sure everything on the list is uh, is approached. And if you're ha- having some trouble getting everything on the list, uh, it is a quite a large list and you need some help with that, please let me know. I have some people who wanted a basket or a backpack or unable to get one, and they might be willing to partner up with you. So if you can do that, that would be wonderful. Uh, I think uh, I've seen some things on social media. Here's a picture of Renee Cothran uh, and her prayer pals going shopping. Uh, Natalie and Dustin. And uh, the, the, the purpose of having the prayer pals do it is so that they not only have the opportunity to work on grace together, but also so that they can pray about their prayer pals upcoming school year. 
And so it's a good time to do that. Back to School Sunday is just around the corner, and we want to remind you, we sent out an email and a social media post that if you are intending to keep your prayer pal, let us know. That just makes things so much easier. Now, one more thing on the blessing box before we move into the sermon. Um, somebody told me last week, the, the, the one thing that I'm a little concerned about are the gift cards. Uh, we have gift cards for Walmart and Amazon. There's an easel out there with paper ones just as reminders if you'll take one. But there's a lot left. And so I'm not sure if that just means people are planning to get them and just haven't taken those or if just nobody's taken them. But if you are, if you haven't participated in the Blessing Challenge for July, I really strongly would encourage you uh, to do so. And you can get the Amazon gift cards on Amazon, of course, at Dillon's, uh, Walmart gift cards at Walmart. But one lady told me this morning, I won't share her name because I didn't get permission to share her name. Uh, but she said, last week when you reminded me, I literally pulled out my phone during your intro and ordered it from Amazon. <laughs> so if you see any drones coming in here dropping packages, <laughs> that's okay. Our current series is called Margin. And as we were talking about this, uh, God gave me a beautiful illustration for this sermon series. Uh, as you, I told you at the beginning, we've been, you know, in reconstruction mode here this whole week. Now, things are going pretty well. They came in, they brought the lift in, but then the lift broke and they had to get a new one. Well, they brought the new one in and, and exactly that happened. I mean, it was just inches from being able to clear the door. I mean, they, and you understand getting a lift in here is not a small challenge. I mean, they had open the doors and you got to steer it. You got to turn the wheels. You got to do like a 52 point turn and you got to finally get it in here and they get it all the way to this point where they're almost there. And yet somewhere in the design, we didn't build the doors to account for that size of a lift. So we had to back the lift all the way out, do another 52 point reverse turn, load it back on the truck and get another lift. You see, there was a a margin there that was set that was not passable. And this speaks so well to what we're going to talk about today. As we think about this series called Margin, we, we need to understand that God has set some boundary lines, not to hurt us, not to hinder us, not to not to just weigh us down, but so that we might live the abundant life in Jesus Christ. And to do that, we have to do what Proverbs chapter 14, verse 8 says, and give thought to our ways. That's kind of the key verse. The the wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. May we be wise in how we live and consider then God's ways, his boundaries. This morning we're going to talk about morals. Morals, first point, are simply this. Morals are God's holy margins. They are the limits that he has set on human behavior. If you, if you look at your Bible, you start in Genesis, you can see that God has some, some expectations with Cain and Abel. There was an expectation on how they came to worship him. Now, what exactly they were, we don't know. But clearly, he made those uh, abundantly clear to Cain and Abel. One of them didn't abide by God's margin, and so he was allowing sin into his heart. There's other places in Genesis, but of course where it really gets expanded is in Exodus with the law. There we learn about God's strict and severe 
margins of moral behavior for us. I had a young man who's been working on reading through the Bible, and he was talking to me on Wednesday night, and he said, man, I don't, this is just so, he was in Leviticus, you know, and he was just about to give up. I could tell by the look on his face. I said, don't worry about it. I mean, you just need to understand that all of the law is just helping us understand what God's limits are. In fact, I told him, the theme of Leviticus is Leviticus 10.10. You have to learn to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean, to understand that God is holy. You're not. That you're unholy. That he is clean. You are unclean. And when you come to him, there are certain things you have to do to be able to fit within his margins. Even those who've never opened a Bible... Even those who've never attended a church service before understand, have sort of an innate understanding of God's holy margins. Turn to the book of Romans. This is kind of interesting. Romans, Paul lays out this treatise very practically and wonderfully. And in Romans chapter 1, he says, hey, all, everybody sins. Everybody misses the mark. Everyone falls short. And and he kind of lays this out, and and he gets very specific. And then in verse 15 of chapter, I think it is chapter 2, he says this. Since they, uh, let's start in verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, they didn't understand God's margins written out, who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law, catch this, are written on, on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Morality, you see, is the proof that there's something greater than ourselves. I'll give you a couple of practical examples. If you, I don't know, you may not know anything about the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement is a movement by a bunch of women to say, you know, we're tired of being sexually harassed. We're trying, tired of being abused in these ways. And it's a very terrible thing. And these women are saying, yeah, me too. I've been mistreated. I've been abused. I've been the object of a man I, I, and so forth. And, and so I'm not getting into that issue within and of itself just to point out that the people who are part of the Me Too movement are largely a godless people who are not going to find in church reading their Bible, studying what God says. And yet there's something innate within them, within their mind, that was never put to them by a pastor, a preacher, a theologian to say this is right and this is wrong. They just have an innate sense that I shouldn't be treated that way. This is not right. This is wrong. So they speak out against it. Now, where did that come from? How do we have an innate sense about what's right and what's wrong? Here's another practical example. Maybe you've heard the term fake news. I'm getting so tired of that term. It's just a term that's been overused. But the idea is that there's some news that is true and based in fact, and there's some news that is not based in fact. It's very biased. Without getting into that issue in and of itself... Let me ask you the question. If there is no absolute truth, if an entire generation close to has been raised to say, you know, this book telling you what's right and what's wrong, that God that you claim to worship who has absolute right and wrong, there are no absolute right and wrong. There is no truth. My truth, it's what my truth is, but my truth is no better than your truth. There's no problem. We can have all of these mixing truths. 
Well, why are you worried about fake news? If there's no such thing as absolute truth, there is no such thing as fake news. It's whatever you want to believe. It's my news. And how dare you judge my news? Okay, just a couple of simple examples for us to see that you don't have to be a religious, God-fearing person to understand that within your mind, within your heart, are some margins that weren't set there by you. They are evidence of something greater than you, which is what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 2. Even the Gentiles who didn't study the law, didn't know the law, didn't worship at the temple, had a sense of what's right and wrong. We all do. Those morals, those... Right versus wrong issues. Even your college professor who who brings in young skulls full of mush and he says to you, now, listen, I know you've been taught a few things about God and religion and faith. but, But my goal in this college course for you as college freshmen is to teach you why this is garbage. Why do you think he takes or she takes such pains to do that? Because he or she has a sense of what's right and wrong. Now, it's backwards, okay? But all of us in ourselves have an innate sense of something's right or something's wrong. And that comes from somewhere. God's morals are truly his holy margins. Now, God's people know this. I mean, let's get away from the world for just a second. First, uh, let's talk about David. David was a man after God's own heart. He sought God in all that he did. He was a righteous man. Wrote much of the middle of your Bible in the Psalms. I mean, some of the most beautiful parts of Scripture have been written by David. And yet David messed up. Now, he thought he got away with it. You know, he committed adultery with another man's wife. And then then he got that husband to come in and tried to, to cover up the sin. And then he sent that man out to die and basically committed murder. And he thought he got away with it. He thought everything was okay. He thought that God was going to let it slide. And God brought a man named Nathan to David. And he told him a story about a shepherd with some sheep. And it convicted David. He got angry and he said, how dare that guy? How dare that man? And Nathan looked at him and said, you are that man. And he was convicted to his heart. Now, now, there was going to be a lot of consequences for David's sin. Time that, we don't have really the time to go into all the consequences for David's sin. But David was going to pay, and his family was going to pay heavily for David's sin. But when David penned the 51st Psalm, he said this in Psalm 51. He's repenting here. He's saying, God, I have messed up. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash out my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. You see, your sin affects you, and it certainly affects other people a lot of times. But principally... Even godly people can come into a worship service and just be weighed down with guilt and shame and sorrow because the things they've done haven't yet come to light. And yet we know in our hearts what David says in verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak 
and justified when you judge. Now, David sinned, sinned against a lot of people. But David understood at, at its heart, sin is against God. It's against our creator, our maker. It's trying to step outside his boundaries. Joseph's another example. Turn to Genesis chapter 39. Now, his example works a little bit better because Joseph was a very talented, handsome, young, prosperous young man. And it really didn't matter, no matter where Satan tried to put Joseph and to bring him down, he'd get knocked down, but he'd get back up again. He'd get knocked down, but he'd get back up again. He just kept coming up. And, and he was a righteous man, and in Potiphar's house, he rose to the top. In fact, basically, Potiphar said, anything is under your control, obviously, except my wife. Well, Potiphar's wife, whose name was Mrs. Potiphar, was not under that same conviction. She came and she tempted him day after day. And let's start reading in verse 7. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one, catch this, is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Why did Joseph refuse? Because he thought he would get in trouble? Well, that probably would have happened. Because he thought he would lose his job. That probably would have happened too. Why didn't he succumb to that temptation? Principally because he held in esteem the holy fear of God. And he fled from sin and temptation in the moment when he had an opportunity. And he fled again and again and again because he understood that sin, though it would be against a lot of people and hurt a lot of people, it would be primarily against God. See, when you sin, it's not cute. It's not funny. Even if it happened a long time ago, even if you think that no one knows the one who does know is the only one who matters. And one day, as Joseph understood, and as I hope you do too, you will face him. And you'll have to answer for why you sin against him. You see, when you sin, you don't have to worry about bothering an elder or bothering the preacher. I mean, it does bother us. But your sin, first and foremost, is against God. Joseph knew that not only was God good, he understood that God's margins are good. And that's, that's our second point. His margins are for our good. God's limits are always for our good. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 3, in the very first account of the very first sin... I said Genesis 3, but 
go by what I mean and not by what I say. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man. Now catch this. He doesn't talk, talk to him about how limited he is. He says this. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, we focus on why did God make this one tree that they couldn't, forgetting that God had filled an entire garden full of trees that they could enjoy, fruits that they had uh, never tasted. I mean, the, the Garden of Eden must have been one of the most beautiful, wonderful things of creation because God made it for his the place where man and God would reside. And he said, there's a part of this garden that's not for you. That's it. Now, there was another tree in that garden. Uh, We find out about this tree later on, the tree of life that they could have eaten of and partaken of and lived forever. God didn't set that tree off limits. He set the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, of all the trees, Eve, could you have not at least picked the right one? May we understand that God's margins are for our good. Now think about all of the things that happened when they partook and they were punished. I mean, immediately there was blame and shame and hiding. There was stress for the first time in a marriage between a man and wife. He did it. No, she did it. And there there was childbirth pain for the first time that Eve was going to experience There was job stress as every time Adam would now go to work, he'd have to work by the sweat of his brow. See, for the first time, all of these punishments, all of these repercussions of sin, human beings were going to experience. And God knew those things would come. And did he want those things? No. That's why he set up a margin, a limit, a boundary. He wanted to keep them from that. How does this apply? You're sitting there right now, and it's very likely in an audience of this size that some of you in here are tempted in a certain way. Financially, sexually, your integrity, in your relationships, in your family, in your marriage. You're tempted to go outside of the boundary that God has set. And and Satan is really good at saying, hey, outside the boundary, man, things are great over here. He's just trying to keep you from having what's good. He knows if you partake of that tree, Eve, then you will be like him. He's doing the same thing in your heart and in your walk. He's saying, just, just, just step across the line. Just take a little bit of a step. Just a tiny step. And, and he's such, such a good liar that if I can from, from my heart this morning tell you, please, and I don't mean this as, as a euphemism, for the love of God, don't sin. Not because he's trying to limit you, but because he's trying to protect you. Because he wants what's good for you. Because he wants the very best for your life. And any time we choose sin and we step across God's margins, we don't get to experience what's good. We have to experience the consequences. The prophet Jeremiah said it this way in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 6. And and I love the way the prophet puts it because he understands... What all preachers and prophets understand when they are trying to teach God's truth. That God's ways are good. 
Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths and ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. And there's some in here who either are this week or who already have said, as this verse says, we will not walk in it. God just, and this is the world's life, you know, God just wants me to be happy. That doesn't make any sort of sense, especially if you're a parent. If you've got young children, they do all things, all sorts of times of things that will make them happy, but endanger them. You get a little two-year-old, and he wants to run and play and run out into the street, and that makes him happy. But if you let him do that, you're a terrible parent. Because you don't under, because the two-year-old does not understand what will hurt him. He can't see that, and so as you as your, as his parent, step in and place boundaries and margins around his life until he can understand that there's danger in the street. God is not deeply concerned about your happiness. He is eternally concerned about your holiness. And he wants you to be in heaven with him. And he wants to keep you from the sin that would keep you from him. God's limits are not to make you bitter. They are designed to make you better. To to, to let your life be lived in the good way. Third, God's limits are to keep us from loss. Pop quiz. Pick on this section right here because you're going to be gone next week. So I'll pick on you now. Okay? Got to look up here. By a show of hands, how many, if you believe this, believe that sin is fun? One honest teenager. Let's try it again. (laughs) How many of you believe that sin is fun? I don't know what to do here. I plead the fifth. I don't, I don't have to self-incriminate. That's what some of you are thinking. I can tell you the truth. Sin is a lot of fun. That's why it's temptation. Because it's supposed to appeal to your eyes and to your flesh and to your pride. And when you're tempted, there's something about that that feels good. Or else it wouldn't be tempting. Okay? So... May you understand that, that sin, you know, Satan was right in the sense that they had a new knowledge when Eve partook of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They became closer to understanding like God, but they were far from God. See, Satan tells half-truths. Is sin fun? Yeah. But the fun is never lasting. And it pales, pales in comparison to the heartache and the suffering that will come later. It was at Chick-fil-A. Normally, that setting is a happy place, as it normally is. But I was there for an unhappy purpose. I was there to have a hard conversation with someone who sat in the very rows you're sitting. She had come up with the idea that it would be really good This guy that she had met of all of 
weeks ago at work. And he was moving out to California, and she thought it would be great if she moved out there with him. To live with him. To enjoy the temporary pleasure of sexual sin. And my hard job was to beg her not to go. I wish she could, I wish I could say she had listened. Satan's very good at his job. And you've got a congregation, whether your parents or your prayer pals or Mr. Jim or all the folks who are helping in the youth ministry, the parent team, whoever it is. Yeah, they plan fun things. Yeah, they're going to have an amazing time at camp. But principally, first and foremost, they want to beg you forever to ask where the good way is. To do what pleases the Lord. Because sin is fun for a time. But it always, always, always Leads to heartbreak. Don't let your heart be broken by the enemy. Stay close to God. Please listen and stay within his margins because he only wants what's best. His limits are designed to keep us from loss. So the, the simple answer then is to say no to the things that God says no to. Sin always brings with it misery and heartache. And I can preach that to them for a few minutes. But all of you need to be preached to to understand that sin is always rooted in misery. Does God want you to be happy in the sense that he wants you to be holy? Yes, he does. Because he understands that unholiness leads to unhappiness. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 says this. The There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You see, since the fall, our spiritual compass has been broken. We want to go one way, and that seems like the right way, and the enemy's right there saying, yes, yes, come, come on, it's fun over here. But in the end, it leads to death. We've been watching the uh, Kellogg Project, which has been in occurrence since creation, and we'll finish at the end of time. (laughs) There is a time in each of those big projects where you get something like this. And it's always, I know, some some sort of weird thing in my mind just to think, what if my car just went, how far would the car make it? How far would I be able to get? Do you know there's people who live like that? They clearly see the end coming. They clear, but they just, they just, there's something within them. They just want to see how far they can get. And Proverbs says, not very. In the end, it's a way of death. So choose the way of right. Morals are God's guardrails to keep us from sin. They're his warning sign to say, whoa, 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 stop, slow down. You're going to kill yourself, spiritually speaking. All immorality really is moving the margin. It's saying yes. We talked about yes and no last week. Immorality is saying yes where God says no. The new morality, maybe you've heard that term, is nothing more than the same old immorality. It's Satan's packaging on doing things your own way. The the enemy has always been working to blur the lines. He'll say, did God really say? 
You understand that's why it's so important to be in his word more than just 35 minutes a week. Because when you're in God's word, you are discerning and learning where God's ways are, where the guardrails are. You're you're following the compass. You're sticking to what he says is best. And the enemy is working to say, well, why don't you just close that book? You got so much to do. Just close it. You know the Bible. You listen to the podcast. You've got it. It's fine. So the farther he can get you away from his word, the easier it is to get you into his ways, the enemy's ways. The the verse that was read to us, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, putting bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. How do values get so mixed up? How do you exchange light for darkness? How do you exchange good or evil. You see, that's where our enemy is very cagey. He's very good at what it at what he does. Specifically, he's really good about cooking frogs. And maybe you've never cooked a frog. I know we're running out of time, so let me tell you very quickly how you do it. See, some people try to do it quickly, but the key is to do it slowly. You novice frog cookers just take your frog and drop it in the pot, and he's smart enough to go, whoa, that's hot, and he jumps out. No, no, no. What you want to do is put the, raw, the, the, the frog in the water that he's used to. And then you turn the flame up just a little bit at a time so it's all he got this frog jacuzzi thing going. It's feeling pretty good. He's not, you know, and you just keep turning it up little by little until that poor sucker is cooked and his goose is cooked before he even knows what happened. He does it very slowly. He, he does it in a lot of ways. He'll use culture, for example, to turn up the heat. Uh, pick an issue. Pick, pick the sin of homosexuality, which is not the worst sin in the world, but it is a sin. Remember what the culture thought about homosexuality, say, 50 years ago? You don't. But there was a time in which homosexuality was understood as a sin, as an evil, as an abomination. Because that's what this book said. And already said, let's close the book. Let's consult psychology. And psychology said, well, it's certainly a deviant behavior. But clearly it's a mental illness. It's not something that can be helped. It's all wacky wiring up here. It's, I mean, it's deviant. It's not the norm. It shouldn't be. But we can't really call it a sin. You see, we're just turning up the flame just a little tiny bit. Then the culture moved and said, you know, homosexual people who practice that, they don't want anything. They don't want to hurt anybody. All they want is to be left alone. Just leave them alone. That's all they want. Just let them live as they want to live. Who are you to judge them? So just leave them alone. Then it went from from being left alone to, no, you know what? We really ought to celebrate that lifestyle. I mean, it's no more different than, than you loving someone who's of the opposite gender. Love is love. Hashtag. It's just, it's just who they want to love. Why are you picking on who they want to love? You think, well, we couldn't step any farther. We see, see, now you're, you're going to bake that cake. You're going to take pictures of that wedding. 
Uh, we're listening to podcasts to see how intolerant you are. It's coming. And how do we get from here to here? The answer is just a little at a time. Just turn up the heat ever so slowly. Quickly, you got to understand your companions make a huge world of difference. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You think your friends don't matter? you got to understand that they eternally matter because you're letting them influence your heart. He who is wise walks with the wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm, the proverb says. And finally, it's just good old-fashioned complacency. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. He lists all these sins. He's very specific. And then get down to verse 32, because he talks about all the evil, murder, gossip, men who have sex with other men, people who disobey their parents, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, boastful, etc., etc. Okay, that's the list. Verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, not only do these, they do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. And so Christians go, well, is that okay to go to my friend's gay wedding? I mean, I, I'm not gay. I, I, I would never do that. But, I mean, I, they've invited me, and I want to celebrate their love with them. To answer the question very clearly, no. It is never okay to endorse what God has said is not okay. Listen to me. Understand very clearly, the world's not done moving the graph. Pedophilia is coming. They're going to use the exact same thing. And you say, adults having relationships with children? No. But you watch in your lifetime. It'll move. Love is love, after all. What's wrong with that? Who are you to judge? So he moves the dial. If you want to stay out of hot water, if you want to avoid getting cooked, four simple words you need to remember. What does God say? What does God say about the matter? Because what God says is always far greater than what anyone else says. I mean, you can take the issue. I don't care if the Supreme Court decides it's okay. I don't say the president says it's okay. If God says it's not okay, it's not okay. And we got to stick within his moral guidelines saying yes to what God says yes to and saying no to what God says no to. So if you have a friend who's a homosexual, first of all, I hope you're trying to lead them to Christ. But don't. Don't go to their wedding. Don't endorse what God has clearly said no. And I'll say that for any other sin as well. Now you may be asking, I thought we were talking about grace this year. We are talking about boiling frogs and sin and death and all these sins. I thought we were talking about grace this year. What about grace? Where's grace? Doesn't God want us to be happy? And, and, and you're asking yourselves, what about grace? My answer to this is grace is eternally important to understand. God can forgive any immoral sin. If you're a person who's struggling with homosexuality, being tempted, but we talked a lot about it this morning, I don't want you to misunderstand. God's arm is not too short. The blood of Jesus is for you too. 
But you've got to acknowledge sin as sin and turn from it so you can be saved from it. May we understand what God's margins are. When we understand the grace that comes through Jesus, we understand clearly Titus chapter 2, verse 12. I want you to turn there. It's not going to be on the screen. Titus chapter 2, verse 12, because it says this about grace. The grace of God brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Some people worry about grace because they say, well, if people understand grace, all they're going to want to do is sin and sin and sin more. And Paul said in Romans 6, should we sin that grace may increase? And his exact words are, God forbid. No, when you understand grace, it doesn't license you to sin. It loosens you from sin. It keeps you from sin. When you understand how much you've been saved from, you're ready to understand what God has saved you for. So may we not forget grace and that it reaches everyone. And once it reaches us, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to immoral behavior. Grace is crucial to understanding the depth of our sin and how far God has reached to save us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lists a great series of sins. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor philanderers, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, and will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Grace has reached to save you from sin. May we not forget how far God has reached. When we understand grace, it keeps us within the boundaries. The answer is, we receive grace when we turn from sin and turn to Jesus. I have a dog named Charlie. Charlie is not there because I want him or love him, but because my wife and children do. When we moved to our house, it didn't have a yard. And so at great expense to me and for the betterment of Charlie, I built a fence around the yard. The fence was designed to keep Charlie from harm. I measured it. It's a a metal fence, and I measured the slats, and it was three and a quarter inches from one slat to the other. And I measured Charlie, and he was four inches. So I said, okay, I'm set. Had the fence built, let the dog out in the yard, and what does he do? He turns and wiggles his tail and gets through. Now, he doesn't run away. He just wants to see what's on the other side. We can learn a lesson from Charlie. You see, outside the fence, there's a lot of things that are going to hurt that one-pound dog. Namely, the 50-pound dog next door. The car that's going down the street. The purpose of the fence is to protect Charlie, not to hinder Charlie. So may we see God's guardrails as God's blessing. I realize we've gone long, and I thank you for your patience and attention. I realize the children are running thin. But 
I want you to understand this very important principle. God's margins are for our best. And we are blessed if we'll live within them. And if you're living outside of them, you need to come to Jesus and you can be saved from your sin. His grace teaches us to live within the margins, to stay within the boundaries, because that's where God's best is found. If you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, there's no better time than now to come and to know eternal life, true life, within God's holy margins. And if you've been in Christ, but you've wandered out of the margins, if you've left the boundaries like Charlie, before you get killed, come back. Come back this morning. Whatever your need is, please come. As together we stand and sing.